This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Once we're brothers, brothers no more. We lost the connection after the war. No revival There'll be no encore Once we're brothers Brothers no more Hey, this is Steve Balton and you are here for a very special edition of My Turning Point. I'm excited for all the interviews we do, but when you have Robbie Robertson from the band on here, talking about his beginning, talking about his friendships with people like Bruce Springsteen, talking about touring with Bob Dylan, it is a freaking amazing, amazing history lesson. I could have sat and listened to this guy talk all day, and so honored to have Robbie on here to talk about his new album, Cinematic, and the incredible documentary, Once We're Brothers. Just sit back, listen, and enjoy to rock and roll history. So it is a jumping off point, you know, and it, it's so funny because with someone of your, you know, everything you've done, picking a turning point is probably impossible, but I'm going to ask you to pick one turning point and we'll use that as a jumping off point for both the documentary and the album. Jeez, <clears throat> you're right. Um, I've, I've been turning and twisting uh, over you know, many a decade now in all of this. And I've had some, and I'm so grateful, some phenomenal turning points. And so I can think of maybe going back to the beginning. And when I was 16 years old, I went from Canada down to the Mississippi Delta to join Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, a rockabilly band from the South. Um, Ronnie Hawkins, I had written a couple of songs that Ronnie Hawkins recorded, and, and I was playing guitar, and there was something that he thought in me that might be worth investigating that at some point he might want to hire me. So... So I go down there, and, and for me, this was like going to the holy land of rock and roll. I'm going to the Mississippi Delta. I'm going to an area that in a hundred mile radius there, uh, Johnny Cash, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, 
on and on and on and on, all come from this area. So in Canada, I am fascinated with what is in the water down there. And so when I went there, it wasn't disappointing in the least to me. First of all, the mythology had already built so much in my imagination that I was over the moon. Then I get there, and you turn on the radio, the local radio station down there, and it's like music that you would never hear on just a regular radio station up north. So I think, okay, this is real. I'm not in a dream here. And then I can go to Memphis, to Beale Street, to Home of the Blues record store, and buy stuff that you could never find in any other record store anywhere. So all of this stuff is adding up to me. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think to myself, <coughs> I'm sorry, I've been doing so many interviews. No worries I, at all, yeah. My voice is getting a little hoarse. So anyway, I think to myself, this thing with Ronnie Hawkins, I've got to make this work. I've got to become part of this world. Now, the problem is I'm too young to play in any of the places they play. I'm 16 years old. I'm too inexperienced to be in a southern rock and roll band. I don't play guitar well enough to play lead guitar in a southern kick-ass rock and roll band. And I'm from Canada. There's no Canadians in southern rock and roll bands. <laughs> it's almost against the law. You know what I mean? So I have to overcome this. I go to work on this thing. I practice. I sleep with a guitar. I work on this music like above and beyond anybody's imagination. Ronnie Hawkins sees this. He feels this. He can tell a guy on a mission. And he ends up saying, I'm going to hire you. And I was quite a bit like, I know. <laughs> I know. Because there was no way that you were going to send me back to Canada. Well, it's funny because there's that great scene in the documentary where he talks about the fact that, you know, there basically was going to be no one who worked harder. So, so that was really your thing early on was just the fact that, you know, maybe it wasn't the most talent, although obviously there was an inherent talent, but it was just like no one was going to outwork you. No one was going to outwork me and the progress that I was making was there was nothing but dust behind me for what I was doing. And I knew it, and so did everybody else. And I had to convince Ronnie Hawkins and Levon Helm, who was his right-hand guy, that I could be the man. 
Now, this was a managed boy, mind you, <laughs> but I was, I was the real business. And I overcame this thing. I became a Canadian in a Southern... Everybody, was, they were all from the South, except for me. And they accepted this. I was also... I was also half Jewish and half American Indian. That should disqualify you <laughs> right off the bat, too. So all of these, all these limitations, all these walls I was up against, I had to break them down. And I'll tell you something, that was a turning point. Uh, this is fascinating to me. Now I'm just thinking about this as a music geek. Has there ever been another half American, or I'm sorry, a half Jewish, half American Indian, Canadian in Southern rock and roll? Or you might be the only one. Did anybody else ever do it? I think I'm one of a kind. <laughs> I think you are. Uh, you know, in a, in a joking manner. Um, and Have there even ever been in Canadians in Southern rock and roll? I mean, obviously there's amazing Canadian musicians, but another one in Southern rock and roll? No. I mean, there was Neil Young feuded with Leonard Skinner, but that was about it. Yeah, but that was <laughs> that was years later. All of that kind of stuff when all of these other people showed up. This was 1960. So now, before we come on to a serious question, did you ever figure out what was in the water? Was it something in the water? It was something in the Mississippi water. It was something in the air. It was something that grew out of the ground in this area. And, and, and we were in, a, in Helena, Arkansas, and right across the river is Clarksdale, Mississippi. And then just down the river was Memphis, Tennessee. That's all you need to know right there. Well, that's really fascinating, though, because I hadn't thought about it, but it's funny because, you know, in the documentary, of course, there's the period where you're in Woodstock around Dylan and Albert Grossman. There's also the period then where David Geffen gets you to move to Malibu. And obviously, you know, for me who grew up in L.A., I'm so biased to the L.A. music scene and I've seen so much of what happens around it. And it is interesting because I do think that the community of musicians plays such a part in that because just talking with musicians, you know, when you're around a lot of other people, it influences you and inspires you. So I had never thought about it, but how much do you think it was simply a matter of, obviously there's the mythology of the Mississippi, but also when you have all of those amazing musicians who are around each other, they're inspiring each other and they're influencing each other. And it's funny, it's like when you do modern day festivals. Now I talk with so many musicians at these things, right? Everybody who goes there, it's a healthy competition, as they put it. No one wants to be shown up. They're all friends, and they all love each other. But you know, when you see all your friends going up there and kicking ass, you feel like you've got to bring it as well. Well, that's always been the case. You know that music, you know, music makers love one another and also realize that we're up against one another in a creative way. So. The community of mu music, we came from a place where we spent many years gathering, going from the Chitlin Circuit in the South all the way up to Canada 
and gathering musicalities and seeing amazing people that nobody had ever heard of that were extraordinary. And we kept gathering and gathering and putting all of these elements in our arsenal and, you know, and, and, and seeing top-notch rock and roll bands too. Then, through crazy circumstance, we end up hooking up with Bob Dylan, somebody who comes from another world from us. And to me, a very interesting world and a very interesting crossroads that he was at. Um, so it was a question of whether these elements would fit together when you're talking about music, you know, coming together and one and one makes three or however that works. But we joined up with a something that turned into a hi historic musical revolution. Um, it was unimaginable what happened when we joined Bob Dylan and played all over North America, all over Australia, all over Europe, and people booed us every night. And we didn't blink. We kept playing, and we played as if the world was wrong and we were right. That's very, very hard to do. And if you weren't doing it with somebody that knew how to break the rules as good as anybody in the history of music, <laughs> you just wouldn't go near it. And we did it. And when we got together again, years later, eight years later, we went out and played. We didn't change a thing. And everybody joined and, and cheered this on. And it was a feeling to think, they changed, we didn't change. The world was wrong and we were right. quite a feeling, <laughs> you know, of like coming through the revolution and finding out that you could win in this musical revolution. But the point that I was leading to was we then went into a place of isolation. We weren't around, we were only around Bob Dylan. We weren't around a community of musicians. We went into the mountains in isolation in Woodstock. There was nobody in Woodstock except us. It changed years later, but in the beginning, it was just us. And we went into a pink house out in the middle of 100 acres in the middle of nowhere outside of Woodstock and made music that had an influence on the course of the culture and music that was astounding to us <laughs> because we had no idea that this where is where it was going. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's funny. I remember I was talking with Don Was about it, right? And we were doing an interview and I was asking him about the moment that, you know, like being in studio and knowing that you had done something special. And he had pointed out working with Bonnie Raitt on I Can Make You Love Me. But as we talked about, that's so unusual. I mean, the thing is, as an artist, you always try and do your best work, but you can never know 
how people are going to respond to it. It what's fascinating is to go back and look at stuff years later on because the thing is too for most artists when you're in the middle of something. So you guys like you're talking about, you're in the middle of a fucking revolution. So you're it's not like you could sit there and say, okay, they get this or they get this. It's years later. And we can tie into, because again, I want to talk about both cinematic, it's fun because I can listen to you talk all day, but the issue is, of course, that, you know, A, your voice is going to go and there's a lot of contemporary stuff to talk about. When you look back on that time from the perspective now of, like, Once We're Brothers, or Once We're Brothers, I'm sorry, can you then figure out, like, okay, now I can sort of see what it was that struck at that time? Or was it something that you knew at the time right away? Like, this is why this is connected so deeply with people and so, you know, resolutely. No, I, you know, in, in honesty, we had no idea of, because we didn't know what was trendy. We were living in our own dimension musically. And we were trying to bring all of these elements together in our music in the most honest way we possibly could. And that was it. That's all we had to go on. And when we made this record and it came out and it had this effect on music and even on the way musicians looked and started dressing and everything. We were like, what's going on? And and at some point you think, wait a minute, are they stealing my shit? Are they like, don't start looking like me, you know? And because this to us wasn't a look. This is just the way that we dressed every day. Because of where we lived, up in the mountains or something, and, you know, it, it, it had nothing to do ever with trendiness and we had never, ever uttered the words, let's do something different. So now, it's funny because most artists, and I know because we've talked in the past that you are like this, most artists never like to look back. They're always looking ahead. But when you do a film like Once We're Brothers, it's one of the few times that allows you to really look back and reflect on stuff. So looking back on it, can you see now what it was that connected so deeply or is it still something that you're like, all right, we just don't, it was just happened to be the right place, the right time and things just worked. I think, uh, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to which this film really displays in a, in a very emotional way, this brotherhood. I don't know. I would put this relationship, this story, this experience in music up against any group in history, that we came in on a train unlike anybody else even close. And nobody in this group ever thought about, you know what, we want to be a famous pop star <clears throat> or anything. That never had anything to do with it. This was from the music, from the ground up. And all we wanted to do was express this musicality. And I wanted to write these stories. I wanted to take you into a movie of music. And that's what we were able to do. And that's what truly separated us from the pack. So in this movie, going back and paying respect to that brotherhood is an honor. 
You know, it's fascinating because I think one of the lines that really jumped out at me in the album is where you say, once we're brothers, the connection was lost. And I, it made me think quite a bit. When you have that connection, can it ever truly be lost? It isn't. The music is never lost. And the brotherhood is never lost. But you do change and grow and things evolve. And what we were for a long time, that we were just back to back in a group called the band because this group, this wasn't a, a singer and a guitar player and some other guys. This was a group that all five people played such a pivotal part in and were so unique in their own way. There's never been a group like this. And so I have such gratitude and such, and, you know, I feel so fortunate to have been a part of something like that and that we were able to do what we were able to do. But things do and, and this was during a, per, a period in the late 60s and the 70s. It was a crazy time. And there was a lot of experimenting with drugs. There was a lot of seeing how close to the edge you could ride without going over. And everybody was in this, everybody that we knew. I didn't know anybody who wasn't on the same wavelength of just living this kind of dangerous. Now, when you look at it, you think, oh my God, that was kind of crazy and dangerous and foolish and blah, blah. But when you're in it, you have no, because everybody else is like that too. So you think, this must be okay. You know, it's funny. I was fortunate a few years ago to talk to Iggy Pop and Ron and Scott Ashton before, I believe it was Scott passed away. And we were talking about the fact they hadn't made an album in 29 years. And they came back together to do the weirdness and we were talking about it and Iggy said, after a while, all the other shit just kind of falls away. And as you get older, can you step away from all the other stuff that came with it and take a, like a sort of a step back and appreciate all that you did musically and everything that happened? Because I'm sure it takes a long time to sort of like, it's funny, I just interviewed Crosby as well for his documentary and you know, in it, he talks about the fact that all of his bandmates still to this day hate him. You know? Yeah. So for you, can you now, as you get older, do you get a deeper appreciation and take a step back from the drugs and everything else? I never had to get a deeper appreciation. I, it's built into me. And I have such a love for these guys and, and what we were together. And I have many other things to do and a lot of other fish to fry, as they say, but... But there's no, for, for any moment, there's no taking away from this beautiful experience that we had together. And so I've never had any issue with that. I have nothing but love and respect in my heart for this brotherhood. Well, it's interesting because you talk about the fact that there are other fish to fry, and that jumps into cinematic. And I like the fact that I think what's really cool is that Once We're Brothers is obviously a song that is about a very specific period in time. But first of all, all great songwriting, of course, is universal. And I think that anybody who's ever experienced that kind of connection should be able to feel it. And what's interesting is I was reading an interview you did as well. I think it was with American Songwriter. You talked about the fact that, you know, all of these songs kind of fit together. 
and you were almost a little surprised because obviously they're inspired by different things. And like Remembrance, for example, is in The Irishman. So when you look at the collected work on cinematic, you know, because songs, do you hear a recurring theme in there? Is there something that kind of jumped out at you that maybe, you know, as a writer, a lot of writing, of course, is done subconsciously. So then you go back and look at it and you're like, oh yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even know I was thinking that. I didn't know all these pieces were fitting together um, the way they were until it started happening so much that I wanted to celebrate it. I wanted to say, this is a wonderful thing that I'm writing music for the Irishman and it's seeping in here. I, I, this music for the documentary, Once We're Brothers, is from the song Once We're Brothers that is on the record. That's seeping in there. I was putting together the 50th anniversary of the band album and the story of the band and experiences from that starts to seep in there. And then the subject matter, the, the Irishman is a fierce mob movie and it's unlike any mob movie that I've ever seen before too. And the subject matter is rough and it's tough stuff. And so some of the songs, some of the music in this, the subject matter, I don't know who's writing songs today about these kind of subject matters, but I couldn't because it, like I said, it all seemed to be part of a movie and all these songs are little movies to me. Well, it's interesting. Talk about then, it's, I suck with titles because I actually am old school enough that I still listen to everything all the way through. I really loved, by the way, it's funny, Dead End Kid. And I mean, you know, since this is a record that, you know, obviously references films. I do a column for Forbes called Who I Am. I just did Steve Van Zandt, who I know you've known for many, many years. He talked about seeing a movie with the Dead End Kids back in the day. Was that an intentional reference? Was that something that just kind of worked out? It was an expression from a time when I was a kid. And there were these movies and, and the expression of meaning you're a dead-end kid, meaning you're not going anywhere. Um, you're, you know, your life is gonna be about hitting a wall. And when I was growing up, and I, I was trying to express to everybody that I, about these ideas and these dreams that I had, and I was gonna be going out in the world, and I was gonna do this and gonna do that, and it was like, you're just setting yourself up for a big disappointment and heartbreak. That doesn't happen to people like us. It's not going to happen. And also, in growing up, part of my family were connected to the underworld, and, a, and there was a 50-50 chance in what you were doing, you could end up, you're just as likely to end up in prison. So all of these elements fitting together made it something as a young kid that I, I had to overcome. I had to out, outlast this. <laughs> I had to live beyond this. And I had to follow this path that I could see out in front of me. 
Um, but there was a lot of obstacles. And so this dead-end kid is really about confronting those obstacles. Well, sure. I mean, you know, as we talked about, literally you're the first and only, you know, half-Jewish, half-American Indian Canadian in Southern rock and roll. So I'm sure no one saw that coming. Especially me. <laughs> it's funny, too. I love, you know, since one of the things I like about this as well is... It, <laughs> I talk about this with artists all the time, right? And the thing is, like you said, you were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the band album. You celebrate that relationship. But what I've talked about with many artists who do anniversaries, who do things of that nature, is that they're always looking ahead as well. So I love the fact, like, for example, you know, you performed with Van Morrison at The Last Waltz. But the song today is so contemporary and feels so 2019. How much fun was that for you to go back and revisit? And it, like, mixed that sort of you know, that long relationship, but bring it to where you are today. Well, Van, to me, is one of the best singer-songwriters I've ever known in my life. He is just, and, and I, I just love him dearly. And so when he comes through town, he, he gives me a shout and we catch up. And we've been doing this a long time. So a while back, he came through and he was saying, well, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm not working on the music for this Scorsese movie and I'm making a record and I'm blah, blah, all of this stuff. And he said, well, can I hear anything? So I played him. I had this writing version of I Hear You Paint Houses. He said, oh, I like that. I said... Do you want to sing on it? He said, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was no more complicated than that. And so we ended up, you know, making this something that we could do together. And, and these voices are kind of going, you know, back and forth telling this story. And it's just so much fun. It's so enjoyable. And, uh, and I just appreciate, you know, everything he's done and everything he's doing. Well, it's really funny because I, I am still such a fan of your first solo album. And that might be, no, we talked a few years after that. I love that record. And it's one of the things, it's interesting looking at the turning point thing and going back to working with Ronnie Hawkins and him taking a chance on you. And then also the band being, like you say, this collection of songwriters that no one else really matched. How much do you feel like when you look back on it, that opened you up to collaboration because, you know, you look at the first solo album where you worked with Peter Gabriel, you worked with Bono, you know, a lot of artists, like it's funny, Clapton's in the film. He's someone who's always embraced collaboration. I just did a big thing with Carlos Santana, who, you know, maybe embodies that as much as anybody. But it, it, truly embracing collaboration, not everyone in music can do that. So do you think that coming from the band and coming from the Ronnie Hawkins era allowed you to sort of do that and makes it just more fun for you? Well, so much of, I mean, the... So many of these things are really collaborative sports, you know, and of course being in the band, you know, was such a wonderful collaboration. And, and I like that. I like, you know, mixing it up with other music people. And I've done it on all my records because I almost find it to be a responsibility to music to mix worlds together. And even in the experimenting that I've done on, you know, I've had the opportunity to 
to do some things embracing my American Indian heritage and and to work with some fabulous, with peyote singers, you know, with in, Indians that nobody's ever heard of that I know it's so beautiful and amazing that I was able to do that. And I'm working on the same record with Howie B., who was a DJ from the underground in London. And, and it was like, well, these worlds are the same. You know, he's like, where I go, it's a ceremonial. And people, and there's lots of smoke, and there's lots of people dancing, and it's just like an Indian ceremonial. So mixing these worlds together is not as far-fetched as you think. And when you get something so ancient and so modern, and you're able to put them together, and it makes a new bang, a new expression of musicality. I mean, that's just a lot of fun. I imagine as well, it's also something though that just keeps it so fresh for you, working with different people and also seeing how their process is. That's, that's very true. And I'm, I'm, my drive is curiosity. And I'm so interested and so curious about new music all the time that I just can't, I just can't keep my hands off it. So I have to work with people and I have, you know, friends of mine that are really, you know, very today's music connected and everything because I just have a, a deep appreciation of what they're bringing to the table. And I've, I need that vibration to stay excited about the challenges ahead. Well, I imagine that also ties in then with your love of doing scoring and films. And it's funny, I think one of my favorite lines in the documentary is when, I, I suck with names, when the producer that you worked with on the early records, I want to say it was John Simon, talked, That's right. about, talked about the fact that you, know, you used to talk about wanting to work with Ingmar Bergman. He's like, no one else talked about that at that time. So for you... You know, talk about how all of this, since we're talking about cinematic as well, all of this ties into that drive and getting to learn the process. You know, whether you're working with Van Morrison or whether you're working with Peter Gabriel or Howie B or Scorsese, you're working with an artist and seeing how they work and learning from that process. That's very true. And the thing of working with Martin Scorsese over all these years on many, many of his movies, everyone, it's like starting all over again. Every one of them is a new experience, a new thing that has to be figured out that I go in with a complete blank canvas and I have to figure out something. <clears throat> and what we're able to do together in this process is really challenging and exciting. And what I've done in The Irishman is something I've never done before in my life. I discovered something completely new on that. And we're already talking about the music in the next movie that we're going to do. So this is an ongoing thing, and it's part of what just keeps the drive alive. 
All right, well, I feel bad for your voice, so we're going to wrap up in a minute. <coughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. It's, don't worry about it, yeah. and, you know. But I, I am curious. I mean, it's funny. You know, I'll put you on the spot. I don't imagine you ever got to work with Bergman, but you did get to work with Scorsese. Is there another director that you would love to collaborate with? I don't know. I don't think about... I don't... I You know, I just don't think about that until it comes up. And when I was younger, I thought about... You know, I you know I thought about people like Karasawa and Howard Hawks and Orson Welles and all of these amazing talents, Nicholas Ray, on and on and on. And sometimes when I would watch their movies and I would hear the sound that they made, the music that went with it, I thought. I could never do that. It's mysterious to me. And I'm very, very thankful that every time I start a movie with Martin Scorsese and I say, I've got an idea. I hear something in this. And maybe if I mix this and did some of that and try this and that, and he's like, oh, no, that's good, that's good. As long as it doesn't sound like movie music. And I think, Whew, thank you. <laughs> well, wrapping up on movies, I mean, you know, when you go back and see, because I always think this is a fascinating process, right? Because you obviously, Once Were Brothers, is in large part your story. But, of course, there's a director who brings his vision. And then, of course, you have the things that other people say. There's the footage. Like, I thought it was fascinating that in the California scene when you're first coming out, um, I love the quotes from David Geffen, but also that it was a Joni Mitchell song used, which I thought was interesting and a great choice. So when you go back and see the finished film, what do you take from it? And what do you hope others take from it? Because, you know, I'm not going to lie, something you, you said earlier struck me when you were talking about the experimentation of that time. And when you see everything that's happened, not you, but when people see everything that's happened at the time, it still shocks me to see how often we lose musicians or things of that nature. I went to a benefit Monday night that Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction and Billy Morrison from The Cult put on. It's a thing called Above Ground and it's all about mental health and addiction, you know, and I mean, certainly for me coming up, I've lost so many musician friends to drugs. It's, it's really, you know, when you see a film like this, you hope that people learn a lesson from it. So for you, what do you take from the film and what do you hope others take from it about you know, less, but also just the legacy of the band. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, back then, the, the, there was an innocence in, in truly being naive about what addiction was. We didn't understand that. Nobody talked about it in our circle anyway. And it was like, it seemed like, well this person likes to drink more than that person, <laughs> and this person likes to do more drugs than that person. That's kind of all you really knew. That's all you really understood about it. And then, and, and, and this was part of the story, too, of the last waltz that I talked about it. You know, and then when Jimi Hendrix died and Janis Joplin died and everybody started like all of this, you would think we would learn a lesson, but addiction 
is not interested in lessons. Addiction lives its own power. And you don't, we didn't realize, you know, how, how much we could be victimized by this power. And, and nobody seemed to be learning anything from it. Now, looking back, and now we're in this opioid crisis and everything, and it is something, it's a part of the human brain that is still that we're still trying to understand and hopefully someday we'll able to do anything about it but now we are so much better educated in dealing with alcoholism and 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 drug addiction back then we didn't know nothing and you feel like you feel a little dumb about the way that you handled things at one time and also lucky that you got out alive. What's interesting, though, is as you talk about this, I, I think that, you know, obviously it's something that affects all people, you know, but at the same time, it's sad to see how much it still permeates in music because I think some of the things simply haven't changed in terms of, you know, the people, the hangers-on, the people who want to be around the musicians, the people who provide the drugs, and everything of that nature simply because they want the party to continue or industry people who are like, Oh, you're making me money just here. Take the, you know, I, I mean, and I won't get into personal stories, but obviously I've seen so much of this as you have as well, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, when you look back on the lessons learned from the band and that time, and like you say, at that time, no one knew what the fuck rehab was. There was no such thing, you know, or if it was, no one had heard of it. You know, what would you say to musicians today in terms of like, just, and I hate to ask for advice on it, but for you who's seen it up close and personal so much, you might actually be able to help musicians in terms of dealing with all the stuff that surrounds it. Well, I'm not going to preach, you know, but I do think that this film, Once We're Brothers, addresses that in a very soulful way. And hopefully, out of that, there will be a blessing of understanding in something that we didn't understand and maybe you can in this day and age um, because it's real and it's dangerous. And we went in there blind and some didn't come out. So, you know, th that's just the truth of it. And it's heartbreaking to me of, you know, what's happened to some of my brothers in this and so many friends and everything. So if we don't live and learn, you know, you know, we're, then we're walking backwards. Cool. Congratulations on both the film and the album. And dude, this was such an honor. I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. Is there, are there any plans to do any of these songs live? Are you going to be doing any live shows around this or? I don't, I don't tour. I don't, I don't do uh, that anymore. Um, I'll do some, probably some TV shows. I think, you know, next week or something, I'm, I'm doing uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I'll do things just to spread the word, but I, excuse me, but I don't go town to town anymore. <laughs> I did that. 
I know. You know what's funny about that, though? I lied then. I'm going to sneak this in because it's, you know, I was a big fan of the Springsteen on Broadway. Obviously, you guys are friends. Yeah. You know? Uh, it's funny. I've done a few stories in Vegas of late, you know, and now you have these, you know, iconic acts who do the residencies there. And in part because a lot of people don't want to do touring anymore. Would we ever see, I mean, look, you know, you see a film like Once We're Brothers, <laughs> you have a hell of a lot of stories to share. Would we ever see you do that kind of show or you're more comfortable now not doing the stage stuff? I just, I, you know what, I got so much on my plate and so much stuff, you know, that's already there and so much stuff that I want to do. And for me, a big part of my creativity is still isolating and going into a dimension of a, of a creative place and taking something out of the air that didn't exist and making it exist. So the writing, I'm writing volume two of my memoir, um, you know, as we speak. And, and it's, it's, I'm writing it. This isn't a, one of those books that, you know, I talk into a tape recorder and somebody else writes it. I write every word of it. And in my book, Testimony, um, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And very satisfying. But this isn't the kind of thing you do with your left hand to me. So I have so much going on. I can't, I don't, I, I can't even think of those other kind, but I rule out nothing. Cool. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you so much. Oh, what an honor, man. Hey, so... I did not lie. This has been Steve Balton, my turning point. And dude, holy shit. What an honor to have Robbie Robertson on here. Hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. Thanks. Who else is going to bring you a broken arrow? Who else is going to bring you a LASIK, Dr. Boutros and the Eye Center have led the way for the past 25 years. Today, this tradition continues by being one of the few practices in the country to offer you iDesign 2.0, using the same technology as the NASA James Webb Telescope. And in the hands of an elite surgeon like Dr. Boutros, more patients are seeing 2020 or better after LASIK. Right now, enjoy 20% off iLASIK with iDesign. Go to theeyecenter.com or call 888-844-2020. Some restrictions apply. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest-drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, 
the money? 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.